does J.K. Rowling's transphobia ruin Harry Potter? I'm going to go out on a, on a limb here, and I'm going to say, no, it doesn't, because Harry Potter ruins itself. And yes. that's, that's the tea we're going to spill. Let's, all right, all right, I'm ready. Um, I have a, a mug that is waiting for you to spill this tea into. Welcome to Trope Confessions, the podcast where we discuss tropes, themes, and patterns in media and in the communities that surround them. This is part two of a special bonus episode. We'll go ahead and jump right in. A big reason that Harry Potter sucks is that it refuses to engage with the idea of trauma. So, yeah. Yeah. So, Harry Potter is mercilessly abused from the time he is one years old till the day he is till the day Hagrid comes and rescues him and takes him away to Hogwarts. And despite this, he is perfectly well adjusted. So not only that, but at the end of the series, like the war is won with like a specific like blow delivered to an individual, which, you know, of course is Voldemort. And the war is just basically over and Harry Potter just goes on and not only does he get married and have children, but he enters a field of work that is inherently violent. Having literally died to save the world, he just gets to go on and live his life. This is the type of thing that only someone who has witnessed other people's trauma can write about in such a cavalier way. Like this is someone whose like personal experience of pain is limited to like the like interpersonal heartbreak, which like I think is a really valid thing to tell a story about, but it does not do justice to the type of violence that Harry lives through. Not only like when he's actually fighting Voldemort and he like kind of makes those choices, but as a young child who is literally abused for 10 years. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That and and I guess I've yeah, I've never really I don't think I've ever like looked at it in that way, but you're you're so right and it's you know, I feel like, you know, you see the joking posts on Tumblr like, wow, the gang really should have gotten therapy and all that. Totally. Know. Yeah. Still, you know, I think the only time you ever even get a little bit of a glimpse into Harry's mental health is in the order of the phoenix when mm-hmm. and and it's treated i i just remember like the way that she handled that in that book didn't there was no real introspection into like why why is harry reacting this way to like why is he so upset at his, that his friend's not talking to him why does he feel abandoned? Oh, maybe let's explore his feelings about watching another teenage boy die. Right. Um, you know, but there's very there's very little of that kind of introspection and exploration of like him unpacking or even just contending with the abuse and the violence that he's witnessed. Yeah. In I his mean, life. he's literally just watched a boy die at the hands of Voldemort. And 
And the fact that so many people reacted to the, to book five by being like, oh, it's about teenage angst. Like, yeah. Like looking back, <laughs> like, so I, I, I really hated that book. It's the only one yeah, that I, too. it's the only one that I haven't reread more than twice. <laughs> Which, okay, what does that say about me? I've read book three, like seven or eight times. <laughs> Yeah. I've read book one like at least four or five times. I've read, I've even read book seven at least three times. And book five. Wow. I know. I know, Maggie. I know. I know. <laughs> I think I've read it three times because I, because okay, but when I bought it, I read the whole thing and I like read it in a sleep deprived haze. And then I was like, I have no idea what just happened. And I read, <laughs> I read it again like later that summer. Okay. Just, just to be like, do I actually know what happened in this book? And I think yeah. part of why I felt that way is because book seven doesn't make that much sense. But okay, anyway. Uh, so then, then like, my freshman year in college, I, like, was really sick and was, like, needing to, like, miss class for a few days and just, like, couldn't think about anything. And I was like, I know what safe retreat I will go to, and it was Harry Potter. But I had, like, reread enough of them recently enough that I was like, I'll just reread book seven because that's the one that I'm least familiar with. And it never even crossed my mind to reread book five. The only time I reread book five was when I, like, deliberately was like, okay, I'm going to reread book five so I can figure out why I hate it so much. Um, yeah. And I don't think I ever did figure out why I hated it so much, basically until much later when I was like, oh, it's because she refused to actually, like, treat his trauma, like, as something that was worth exploring in the narrative. Like, he's angry and he's pissed off and, like, his friends and stuff like that, like, react to it. But, like, she never, like, cor- in my opinion, correctly uses that as, like, the thing that's, like drive like that like okay let me figure out how to phrase this if his trauma having experienced cedric die in front of him and then see dudley like almost have his soul eaten by death eater or not death eaters um ah, what are they called dementors. dementors thank you um if that trauma was actually the center point of that book then him doing all this stuff like would have like like you know to like like letting the dreams about Voldemort into his head and stuff like that if those things were really the thing driving him then i think that that book would have like felt satisfying even with Sirius's death in a way yeah. that it just never does and i think part of why is because whenever he thinks about it what he's trying to do is prove himself he's like trying to prove to the world that he's right and that Voldemort has like come back or something and it just doesn't really make sense from the fact that like he's actually in so much pain but like it makes perfect sense if you realize that the person writing it has never tried to contend with that kind of thing and is much more interested in being seen as correct than she is interested in like exploring deep emotional pain yeah absolutely and and i think this is a a good kind of segue back to um and and we can come back to your other reasons (laughs) in terms of the the conversation around um trauma and abuse she brought up in this statement that she put up on her website was basically using her own ex- experience as a domestic abuse survivor and and this is not to discount any of that um i i absolutely believe that this is she experienced this and mm-hmm. i definitely don't want to discount that trauma at all but uh, but using like i survived this and that is what makes me so protective of my my safe spaces for women 
um, which is kind of a reasoning that she used. I don't know, Aya, if you actually went and read the whole, I the whole thing. I didn't. I think I didn't um, actually realize that she, um, like, refers to herself as an abuse survivor. I think that I managed to miss that part of the conversation. Yeah. It sounded like she had experienced sexual assault and she also experienced domestic abuse. And it was unclear if this was the same person. Um, I had issues with kind of the way she talked about her abuser and just, just the language she used in terms of like, I got lucky that this person decided to restrain himself that day. It was kind of what she said, which was, Whoa. I don't know. Yeah, it's 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 a lot, and honestly, I would not recommend going and reading this statement unless you, if you really want to, it's on her website. But I, um, I don't know. It was I just found it like very gross and upsetting, and it just seemed like perhaps the reason Harry never contends with the abuse and trauma he experienced is because she, she hasn't, hasn't either. Yeah. It's and, not that she hasn't so, experienced it, it's that she's never contended with it. Okay. That's right. That's interesting. I, I, and it seems, I feel like because Harry is her self insert in this series, that perhaps her view is saying like, what's important is proving that I'm right and I'm, I'm fine and I'm strong. I'm like, I'm not going to talk about this. I'm just going to move past it. Right. And prove that I, and uh, that I'm fine and that it doesn't matter. And I do think I, that you see that in Harry's reaction to a lot of the stuff. And then to the point where, you know, you fast forward 15 years and, you know, he's happy family man right. that has no problems and just arrests people and sends them to wizard jail. So. My God. Yeah. I feel like I took, I took this to a, a kind of a dark turn. And no, um, that's so interesting. And I think that it yeah. honestly, I mean, it changes my argument a little bit from like, this could only be written <clears throat> by someone who's never like actually experienced like per- interpersonal abuse or systematic abuse um, and reframes it as like, this could only be written by someone who whose privilege like allowed them to never have to like contend with this. And who then assumes that that is, like, a universal experience. Which kind of, to me, explains, like, why she's, like, so unsympathetic to, like, literally one of the, like, most systemically oppressed groups of people. Absolutely. I mean, and and more or less choosing the side of the oppressor in that relationship. Right. Yes. Of, you know, and, and opting to use her platform of 14 million that perhaps have never educated themselves about the about the trans experience might go read that and then say like you know what she's right and yeah and could do real real damage and real um real tangible harm to individuals that you know people who have been fans of her series and felt and felt like the only place where they felt safe and comfortable was in the Hogwarts, you know? Right. Just to put a bow on it, I think using your experience of abuse that you've probably never sought therapy about as reasoning to 
not consider a group of women to be real women uh, is fucked up. Yeah. Yeah, it's fucked up. Can I just also say, I know a million other people have already made this argument, but, like, if men want to enter a bathroom and assault women, like, those doors are not locked. Like, the entrance to the women's bathroom is unlocked you don't have to prove that you're a woman to get inside of it like if men were going to use the women's bathroom as a place to assault unsuspecting women like who what like are behind the stall peeing i don't like i don't even understand what this argument is supposed to be like okay i'm like yeah either i'm in the stall and that stall is locked in which case any person of any gender and any like who has any set of genitals could I guess break down that door? Like, what are you arguing here? Like, I, don't I just, know. It's, yeah, it's a complete like, straw man. Like, like what? Like, are, the, are the bathrooms in England like stallless, and you're all just like sitting there together with your pants down, and you're worried that like a trans woman might sit down on the toilet next to you, and there's no wall between you, and she might look at you? Is that what you're worried about? Because like I've never been in that bathroom. Actually, no. there is a bathroom like that at Reed. I just want to. Um, oh, just want you to know that. <laughs> That's that's kind of cool. <laughs> there's a bathroom at Reed in the library where I don't know why, but there's just two to- toilets in a single singular stall, and it's like in the basement, oh. and like no one ever like r- rarely is anyone ever down there, and it's just weird. <laughs> that's funny. There actually there's a restaurant in Boulder that has a bathroom that has two <laughs> two toilets in it. Like you know you know the only time that I think it kind of makes sense is like remember being like a very small child and just like being afraid to go in your own stall and like insisting yes. that you come in the same stall as your mother yeah yeah like that like i could see it maybe making sense there but like okay whatever yeah or like drunk girls yes drunk girls i drunk girls love to go pee together so yeah. actually they, maybe like, i shouldn't they, speak for they, all drunk girls do they go but... in the same stall though because i've never done that um no but i feel like i have gone into a single stall bathroom i've with done another that woman i've done that yes I've so done that. yeah yeah another reason that harry potter sucks is that there it is it does not it refuses to deal with the notion of people being evil in a way that like makes any sense (laughs) this is to me like relatively forgivable in terms of the fact that like many 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 stories feature a villain that is just pure evil like i'm not gonna talk about star wars but there's (laughs) there's there's some evil guys in star wars and you know, there's plenty. There's many a comic book film and comic book that has just a purely evil dude or woman, but you know, evil guy, evil person. Um, and so, like, you know, when Voldemort came along and was just like basically evil from day one, like that seems fine. But then here's the kicker to me: is that in Voldemort's case, his childhood abuse and trauma. And the fact that he was like born of this, you know, forced marriage where the woman mm-hmm. had, you know, seduced the guy with a love potion. In his case, being born out of abuse and trauma, like, is sort of implied to have led to him being evil. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it, to- it totally, yeah, it's what totally the implied. Fuck? Yeah. So, like, I'm not even that worked up about the fact that he just, like, is purely evil with no humanity. Like, 
I think that that's like cliche and not that good, but to me it isn't problematic. And when I say problematic, I do mean it in the 2014 Tumblr era sense of like, your fave is problematic, you're not allowed to like it anymore. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so to me, like that's maybe not very good writing or just sort of like f- relying on like cliche ideas and tropes. But where it crosses the line from being like, this makes this not that interesting to this makes this is self-incriminating is the fact that um, his family history is sort of set up in the narrative to explain why he is the way he is. And in particular, the fact that his mother used a love potion to get his dad to like marry her and be with her, it's almost like she's implying that if you're born out of that type of union, you're born broken. And like, yeah. I'm not gonna say what like 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 obviously in the real world the much more likely thing to happen is that a woman gets pregnant from rape, and I'm not gonna say what like a woman should or shouldn't do if she gets pregnant in this situation, but like if she does choose to keep the child, I certainly want to believe that that child is a fully human, <laughs> fully capable of love, being. Yeah, to my memory and correct definitely correct me if I'm wrong. But is there a moment when you kind of see you see him start to kind of like flip that switch of being of of choosing to be evil? Because I I to my memory, there's not that no, moment where no, he's you, evil. you see him kind of picking that. Yeah. It's like he's evil from from the get-go and was just destined to be that way, as you said. Right. But I feel like it would be a much more compelling story to like you know, treat him like a normal, nuanced human being and and see him wrestle with the choice of being good or bad. Right. And so with the knowledge yes. of, of his of his family and, and knowing that you know, he was born out of these unfortunate circumstances. Right. And I'm sure that that story's been, that story's been written um, probably many times, but. Well, I mean, to me, to, to me, the real reason why this is so bad is because it refuses to engage with the real reason that people do terrible things. Like, she kind of yeah she kind of based the whole like death eater mentality like off of like being a nazi i guess and like nazis were real people yeah like maybe there was a sociopath at the head and maybe you can like declare that that person is like truly evil but like down the chain of command most of like i'm sure there are tons of people who were like just you know like kind of interested in being terrible but like a lot of them were okay like this terrible thing is happening but like this is my job and this is what i've been doing and like um it my family's going to be safe and so i'm going to i'm going to keep doing it um yeah and to me there's just there's really none of that reasoning in Mo- like in most of the Death Eaters, like you see that kind of in Dolores Umbridge, where she she isn't where she you know where basically she she is that like you know government official that's like just being an authority to, in, to be an authority, and when the person ahead of her like becomes evil, she just kind of like keeps following them. Like that's maybe the one example of of this. Um, 
of this like type of evil where the, the person isn't necessarily out to be evil. Um, but like by and large, most of, most of the Death Eaters are just like ruthlessly evil for no reason. Yeah. And how how do you fit Snape into into that? Like, have you have you? And this genuine genuine just question: If you've kind of contended with like his arc fitting into this, like most of the death, and because it's true, most of the Death Eaters are just like we're evil for the sake of being evil. My family's rich, and we want to keep our money, so we're gonna follow the. Yeah. The okay. Well, so purist. right, right, right. That's that's a great question. I really romanticized Snape for a long time. Me too. Um, yeah. I told you we'd get to this. <laughs> um, I think you did so more than me before his reveal, but definitely in book seven, when he like insists on looking at Harry's eyes or whatever, like in the moment of his death. I like mm-hmm. I was like, oh, this is so beautiful and tragic. Like he loved Lily so much. And now I am like, motherfucker, like you couldn't just be good for the sake of being good. You had to do it because you had the hots for this girl. Like Oh my god, I know. What I is know. your fucking problem? Snape's an incel. Snape is an incel. Yeah. Yeah. Um all right, I'm gonna, and I'm gonna say this. This is, I think, probably the first time I've ever admitted this out loud. <gasps> oh my god, I, this is the real confession. This is, I'm like, legit. This is the real confession. I was wrong about Snape. He's bad. He's bad the whole way through, <laughs> and he's bad in a way that's like really ordinary. That many, many people are bad, and I think that the way that a lot of people still romanticize him and romanticize his arc is extremely dangerous. Yep. And it's bad, and I shouldn't have participated in it. <laughs> but your evil boyfriend, Maggie. I know, I know. Oh. I think he was my original evil boyfriend. Oh, this is so heartbreaking. I know, it's, I know. It's, but at the same time, I'm like, I want to, to I'm going to claim this as a moment of personal growth for myself. <laughs> I'm proud of you. Yeah, um, it's definitely, I, I do, because I think and I will say, and Aya knows, and Aya heard me say this as children, so they can corroborate <laughs> it. Uh, I did insist that Snape was in the in the world of the book was a good guy all along. You did. I always yes. I contended this for. I a was very not long sure. Time. I was really unsure. Um, and I I insisted on it, and um, and ultimately, I think that. I look back on that and I'm like, oh, well, I mean, in the text, technically I was right, but also it feels really wrong now. (laughs) It feels really wrong that I, uh, that I stand for him so, for so long. And, um, and now I, and I think especially like being an, being an adult woman now and having had romantic experiences with men that like not, don't exactly match kind of the story of what happens <laughs> with Lily and James and Snape. So. Obviously, obviously not. But do you I think that you could like boil boil that love triangle wink wink down um <laughs> to to oh, its, so we are you know, its barest parts. Today. <laughs> yes. Go ahead. Go ahead. Um so like we could boil that that 
that relationship down to just like it's it's uh root parts and it's I think an experience that a lot of people probably have had, uh, you know, just like the quote unquote nice guy who feels like he has ownership of this girl that he has the hots for. And then, um, you know, hopefully doesn't lead to like a lifelong grudge match where you, uh, a, you know, are an abusive teacher to that woman's child in the future, but... <laughs> oh my god. But I think just the kind of the male posturing between James and Snape in those flashbacks, I... It's definitely, I think, um, something that a lot of real-life people have probably experienced, something... Oh, absolutely. I think it's, yeah, I think it's very real. I just don't think it should be romanticized. No, not at all. Not at all. And I feel like I lost the plot for a second. But basically, I, um, I think that now I, as an adult, I can see that a lot more and see, and, and also see where it's not just something that, I feel like should have been painted more explicitly as bad behavior on Snape's part, but it is dangerous to, for young readers to see that and, and to see it romanticized in a way where, you know, like all of the graphics that people made after the seventh book and then the seventh movie came out. Of, after you know, all the this dough, time. All, after all the, yeah. And I'm like, yeah. that's fucked up. <laughs> that's bad. Yeah. It's bad. Yeah. Um, right. And, and y'all, yeah, that's not what know. love looks like. Okay. Nope. Like, no, yeah. that is not a healthy, healthy relationship. Snape, yeah. someone else who should have gone to fucking therapy. Word. Oh, word. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Sorry, I feel like I've been dropping the f bomb a lot in this episode. It's okay. I think I. I think I've decided that. This one just has to be uncensored. We're too we're too yeah. angry. We're too we're too yeah. up in arms about it. It's true. Do you have any other thoughts in terms of where Snape fits into the whole Death Eater Death Eater thing? Is he the no, exception I, that proves the rule? No, I think you covered it. I think I think okay. you're right on the money. All right. Yeah. That's sweet. I'm trying to remember. I distinctly I distinctly recall that I was in some debate the night that the Harry the seventh Harry Potter book dropped. I was like, I remember being at the the bookstore in Boulder with my sister, and they were like having all these Harry Potter themed events leading up to midnight, and I was in mm-hmm. a debate about whether or not Snape was good, and I literally don't remember which side I represented. I just remember feeling like I had won the argument. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that I argued that he must be good because at that time I was very deeply into the Dumbledore is not dead.com theory and and the like crux of this theory is that like Dumbledore and Snape are in cahoots which ends up being true but um, but Dumbledore is dead and before the seventh book was released JK Rowling came out and was like no guys he is dead (laughs) I do remember that. I do. I do remember that. Um, which like kind of put a bit of a a bit of a damper on my like whole theory that I built up in my head. But I think that enough of the points about like 
Snape and Dumbledore having to be in cahoots for certain things to make sense. I think enough of those points were correct that um, that that's that must have been what I argued. But I literally don't remember, okay. which I think tells you something about how the impact of these books has decayed in my mind over time the more that I've thought about them, which yeah. is too, too bad. Too bad. Um, yeah. Well, I also think, I don't know, this is, and this is a whole other conversation that we can, we don't necessarily need to get into today, but I also think that um, just as, like, I think Snape is a worse character than J.K. Rowling wants him to be, I also think Dumbledore is a worse character than she wants him to be. Tell me more. And if you, well... Do you I mean just, the fact that he groomed a child to grow up and die? <laughs> yes. That yeah, what you mean? yeah, that's it. <laughs> okay. Nailed it. <laughs> Sorry, I didn't mean to steal your thunder. No, no, it's okay. I mean, you said it very succinctly, and that is basically what I was going to get at. And, you know, you just think about, like, also all of the times that he put Harry's life in danger and... I don't know. Was he was the he was intended to be the steward of this child's life, to, like keep him safe, and just time after time led him into danger and put his life at risk, and to ultimately, but then saved him to ultimately have him make that sacrifice just later. Like we want you to die, but just not right now. Yeah. So. I really, like, I think that that is an acceptable thing for a character to do if the character that it's done to, Harry, then, like, contends with how, like, complex that then makes their relationship. But of course Harry never does. Like, Harry then, seeing Dumbledore in the train station of his mind when he's dead, he's just like, oh, like, I'm good. I did good. Here's my parent figure mentor that I've looked up to for many years. He's here in my mind to congratulate me on having done the good thing. And I'm just, I'm cool. Yeah. Cool. Like if Harry had then gone on to be like, hang on, what the fuck? Like Dumbledore, I trusted you. And like, I am glad that I defeated Voldemort, but also look what you did to me. Like that would be one thing, but of course Harry never does that. No, of course not. Of course not. Harry Potter sucks. I is less. Another reason that Harry Potter sucks is that JK Rowling really fucking hates ugly people. And she uses ugliness to stand in for moral ugliness at every possible turn yeah she definitely she does that with um with weight as well like so many of the of the evil or like perhaps not explicitly villainous but vile characters in the story are you are 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 fat or overweight and Mm. that does kind of bear an implicit like because this person is fat, they are also evil. Right. Right. So from the description of Dolores Umbridge being having a toad-like face to her repeatedly making fun of Dudley, it, like like the, the, the narrative, the textual narrative itself, like not even the characters around it, but the, 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 the voice of narration regularly says things like that, um, that Dudley is 
wider than he is tall and then correlates him with being pig-like and therefore Mm -hmm. stupid. Like, she explicitly ties being overweight to being either mean or or, or unintelligent. Um, Whereas Harry is... Um, he's skinny, fast, clever. Um, he has bright green eyes, which of course make lets you know that he's intelligent. Um, he has unruly hair, so that you know that he's you know uh, willful and stubborn. Um, at, you know, at, just at every turn, she uses physical traits as a stand-in for actual characterization. So Petunia is explicitly characterized in the first book as having a long neck, good for craning over the uh, fences of her neighbors in order to spy on them. <laughs> Damn. <laughs> yeah. Damn, Petunia. Yeah. Um... I mean, and then, you know, and then you have the fact that the the traitorous character literally physically transforms into a rat, and then when he's in his human form, he has rat-like features. I mean, and and these are relatively common, I think, um, like, children's book tactics. This is a a, a thing that that definitely occurs, Um, and and I think the place that it um, is really done a lot is actually in animated film, Um, the use of a character's... um, physical presence to denote char- like character traits um, as a shorthand is something that you see a lot of. And so, for example, Merida in, uh, in Disney's uh, Brave, her wild red hair is sort of a stand-in for the fact that she is herself unruly and um, stubbornly herself. Yes. Um, however, yeah. I, I think that in a visual medium, Someone's physical presence and the way they impose themselves on the screen as a stand-in is something that feels to me a little bit more forgivable than explicitly using uh, weight and ugliness as uh, yeah. uh, you know as ways to characterize your 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 characters in a written form. I and totally. I don't know. I'm, I'm willing to be argued against on that, but it bothers me. No, I I totally see your point, and and the one, the one other instance that just sticks out to me so vividly is um, the experience with Aunt Marge in yes, for the uh, yeah. Prisoner of Azkaban, where mm-hmm. um, for for anyone who's unfamiliar with that part of the story, this is before Harry goes back to Hogwarts in the fall so it's early in the third harry potter book and his uncle vernon's sister marge comes to have horrible. dinner with she's a horrible them. mean yeah she's rude, she's really vicious mm-hmm. and she is and she's saying really terrible things about harry's parents and um you know, she's she's basically just honestly, I can't even tell you uh, what the utility of this scene is other than showing Harry accidentally using his magic outside of school. Um, but basically this character is used as a prop for that ha- to happen. And she says something against Harry's parents that makes him so angry that he unintentionally like casts this spell that makes her blow up like a balloon and fly away. And this is a woman who's already been described as being overweight. And yeah, and I it's it's almost I don't know 
it's like this trait that is both used to make this person come off as evil and as part of their bad qualities Mm -hmm. is then further punished by literally blowing up like a balloon. And and that is a scene that always that always stuck with me as well, where it just didn't feel like it felt like punching down to me. It does feel like punching down. Mm hmm. Yeah. I also want to point out that um, Aunt Marge is described as very masculine. And and so uh, so lots of people have pointed out that Rita Skeeter is described as very masculine and that basically yeah. J.K. Rowling hates masculine women. Um, mm-hmm. But but in addition to Rita Skeeter, like Marge is described as having like this huge bony jaw and like basically looking exactly like Uncle Vernon, but like in a female form. Um, you know, and she she has this dog that is, like, very aggressive and is sort of this, like... She, like, she's sort of coded as having all these very, like, aggressively masculine traits. Mm-hmm. Which, like, you know, would probably be hateful on a man also, but because she's a woman, it's, like, coded in this way. Like, the fact that she's aggressive is even, like, worse because she's a woman. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so, so this is just one example of a place where I think that J.K. Rowling's implicit bias um, starts to, to show itself even in the text. And so, um, so you don't necessarily, it's like, it's like once you start to see the fact that she is a transphobic person, it, it, starts, to, it starts to creep out of the story itself. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And what were what were some other things that you see as evidence of of the the series ruining itself for you and not JK Rowling's yeah. existence extra textually ruining well, so, it for so, you? Something that's always really bothered me and this has bothered me basically since the day that you told me that you were a Slytherin, which <laughs> by the way, I, I just have things to say about that still but okay this was like we were in fifth grade we were 10 years old and we were probably talking about harry potter because it what the the series wasn't done at that point and we were obsessed with it and mm-hmm. you like told me you were a slytherin and i was like no you're not a slytherin you can't be a slytherin slytherins are evil and then like as my opinion about it progressed it became less that slytherins are evil and more that like jk rowling didn't understand her own system and that like yeah the concept of like the way that she's the the concept of an entire house of people like a quarter of the population having like being coded as like snake like and like 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 basically evil is really bizarre and just like really oddly done and a really weird thing to have in a children's story where you're basically telling someone once you get sorted into this house like that's what you are yeah and and so okay so i'm really into the enneagram like you as you know and um ambition is like the star trait of the enneagram type three and i think that like that type of like characterization like being code like having ambition as your main like as a main personality trait is not in itself problematic like three like people who are enneagram threes can be really really wonderful people and so the idea of having um, ambition co- like as a primary character trait can be really interesting, but I personally think that she really did it wrong, and I've pretty much always thought that. Like, I think basically when I started, like, 
thinking about anything critically. I like started being annoyed by this even while I was still enjoying the series. Um, yeah, totally. And and to to your point, I think as as a child, I did see see myself in Slytherin and and but also I I think that part of placing myself in that house as a young reader was not just about the imagery of it or the characters that I liked that were in that house. Um, Unfortunately was a Snape stand for a long time. Uh, I do, (laughs) I do still have a very, um, a a special place in my heart for Draco because I think she really did wrong by him as well. Uh, But all of that being said, I think there was also um, a little, there was part of me that saw the, the nuances as a a child, an 11 year old child Mm -hmm. saw the nuances of the houses in a way that I don't think the author does to this day. And the woman's like 55 years old. Right. So, so tell me more about that. What is it that you saw in Slytherin House that so appealed to you? Um, I think it was the the uh, the flip side of ambition and the the cl- the cleverness mm-hmm. of and just and just kind of like the craftiness of of those of those characters and and I do think that she often portrays this as as bad that where it's like oh you're crafty you're scheming to right. bring others down to lift yourself up but I also think that all of those traits can be applied in ways that are very helpful that make you like a good loyal friend and someone that you would want to have on your side you know, right. yeah. and 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 I think I see that in a lot of and on all of the houses, there's both good and bad. And like to the point where now I'm like Gryffindor is the house that would have the group of of just like blindly faithful militant Nazis. Right. <laughs> and not Slytherin. But that's also I don't know. That's my 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 own uh, like bias against Gryffindor showing, I guess. But it was interesting to me to to explore more of of what is actually behind these archetypes that this author has built up and i also think i've seen i've seen a lot of really beautiful uh contemplation of this in the fan community online too of kind of seeing like here are the ways that slytherin and hufflepuff are similar here are the ways that Ravenclaw and Hufflepuff are similar thing, you know, and just kind of seeing like, here are all of the great qualities of these houses and how mm-hmm. they kind of overlap and what's the Venn diagram of each of these groups of people and the ways that, you know, maybe there's like that one kind of outstanding overarching personality type that would put you in one of those houses, but that doesn't mean that you're constricted to that for your entire life and i don't think that jk rowling sees it that way i think she does see like oh you're 11 years old and you told the sorting hat that you want to be in slytherin because your parents were in slytherin you're evil and you're going to be a death eater and that's it that's your life yeah so and that yeah, yeah i don't know there's also the fact that like just the idea of like a fixed house that has like no room for like growth or self-reflection or change um 
is also like just like aside from the fact that Slytherin itself is like coded as implicitly evil, there's also the fact that just being sorted at all reflects a viewpoint of the world that like that says that certain characteristics about a person the idea of fixed houses um and the idea of like fixed character traits to me represents not just the like not just a problematic viewpoint of like some people are just evil or are just more likely to be evil like regardless of like anything else um, but it also, it does say something about, like, her ideas about gender and, like, fluidity. And, yeah. And, and to me, like, just any time that you take that worldview and apply it to any any aspect of someone's personality, like, that, that to me, like, is not the message that I want to be sending children. <laughs> <clears throat> yeah. And so I know she kind of tries to get around this by being like, oh, like, you chose to be in Gryffindor. But, like, once you've made that choice, like, kind of seems like that's it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, totally. And, and I mean, I don't know. I think that, I guess I've seen people use this as kind of a, have been like, oh, this is like galaxy brain looking at the trio and saying like, Oh, like they're all in Gryffindor, but they all have traits of the other houses as well. So like Hermione has a lot of traits of Ravenclaw and Ron has traits of Hufflepuff and Harry has traits from Slytherin. And I think that that's a cool interpretation of like, okay, all of these friends chose to be in Gryffindor, even though they could have very well fit in any of the other houses. I also, th- I don't think that that was intentional. Like the farther, the older I get and the more I, I read of fan, um, you know, fan cultures, perceptions and ideas and contemplation of this series, the more I think like JK Rowling doesn't deserve such a devoted fan base who is, right. who is scrying her work for this deeper meaning. Yeah. I, I, I'm not sure that, uh, I don't know. I don't know that, sh- that she deserves, she deserves that. And I, I don't know. It's, um, something I've, I've kind of grappled with. Cause on, on the one hand, I like, I look back and, and I found so much meaning in Harry Potter growing up. It was a really, really important series to me. And it did give me that kind of comfort at times in my life when I felt like I didn't belong and like I just needed a warm, safe place in a book to retreat to where I could just exist in that world for a while, you know? Mm -hmm. And, And I think that is a really common... Um, it's a common experience for especially a lot of people around our age who are kind of, you know, late 80s to early mid 90s babies who really grew up with this series and grew and were kind of the age that Harry was throughout the series as they read mm-hmm. it. Yep. Um, and and so I, I think that that is all it's like an almost universal experience for people who are really big fans of, of the books. Um, but I also think I have kind of like stepping stepping back from it um, i i wonder like how much of the brilliance and weight that i put in this series was about just the comfort that it gave me and the 
the ability to retreat into this magical world at a time when I needed that, how much of it was, was that element of it and how much of it was actually this like amazing, brilliantly constructed story that has shaken the literary world, you know? Mm-hmm. Well, and I mean, it was, it was everywhere. It was ubiquitous. Yeah. I mean, the fact of the matter is that like being a Harry Potter stan at that time was like, it was an acceptable form of escapism yeah and that that message was everywhere and so like even if you even if even if the way that even if the way one felt as a child was that like oh i'm different and i'm unusual and that's why i relate to this there's like something very safe about feeling different in the way that seemingly everyone else also does yeah absolutely Um, absolutely so I, I had a few more things that I wanted to say about the way that Harry Potter oh, sucks. Totally. If that's totally. okay. <laughs> yeah, please. No, I honestly, I, this, we said this is like bonus, maybe a mini episode. I feel like we're going to be releasing multiple long episodes <laughs> about this. <laughs> because I, I do think that um, just given the cultural cachet uh, that Harry Potter held for so long, it's going to be hard to avoid talking about it in yeah. detail in on you know across multiple occasions. Um, so yeah, definitely lay it on me. I want to hear why is why else does Harry Potter suck? Okay. I, by the way, I don't think I will ever argue that Harry Potter as a character sucks. I am completely sympathetic to him and what he's gone through, and I think that. The narrative does not do him justice, but like I, I like him. I'm I'm not here to tear down the character of Harry Potter. Yeah, just want to put that out there. So there is a way in which the Harry Potter universe implicitly, basically, upholds British colonialism as just like imperatively or implicitly good. Um, Tell me more. So like these ways are like numerous and subtle. And to, 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 and I'm going to first go back to the Hogwarts houses for just like a minute and then I'll move on to a few other things. But so, um, and lots of people have made these points in various places online. I'm just aggregating them. So in regards to the Hogwarts houses, JK Rowling herself has said that she hopes that she would be sorted into Gryffindor house. And over and over again in the books, Gryffindor house is sort of held up to be the best house. A great example of that is the fact that Neville has to sort of prove himself to be a real Gryffindor at the very end and that this is like celebrated. Like, you're a real Gryffindor. Like, yay, you can come be part of the good crowd. And to me, like the viewpoint that one can be born and one can be like inherently part or not part of like the good group is such a like white colonialist viewpoint and i i think that jk rowling would tell you that that's not what she believes that all of the houses have strengths but like the way that she goes about characterizing them like it's not just that it's annoying that as i said earlier that you are like sorted into this house and then you're sort of static it's not just that that's annoying it's the fact that one of them is like lauded as like the best house to be in but not all of you get to be in it and like that to me just sort of feels like the way that britain feels about the rest of the world <laughs> yeah <laughs> and i mean obviously america also feels this way 
and I don't think that that's cool, and I, yeah. I'm just gonna, I, I, I don't like it. I don't think that's, I don't, I'm not here for it. I'm not a stan. Okay. Agreed. Um, so the places, the other places where this becomes apparent um, is not just in the existence of these lower races of creatures. So um, you have obviously lots of people pointed this out that um, the the goblins like are <laughs> basically characterized as Jewish, <laughs> like as a Jewish yeah. stereotypes. Um, and then you have the 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 freaking house elves that are yeah. like servile and like coded as like wanting to serve and like being happy to serve and like come on um yeah that's a bi- big old yikes that's a big old yikes yeah and the one thing that i also think is fucked up about the house elves is you know the one character the one time a character stands up for them She's treated with ridicule, and um, yeah, and, is, and it's just made. It's just the kind, completely like the butt of a joke when Hermione is trying to campaign for right. the freedom of house elves and trying to convince them, having to convince them that they should want to be free. And right. this is also the character that J.K. Rowling has retconned into being black. So there's a lot to unpack there. There is so much to unpack there. And this is one of the, this is, this is a perfect example of, I need a word for this. This is a perfect example of something which like, if you take the text of the book to be the law, then like, it's true that what Hermione is doing is, is wrong because the house elves don't want to be freed. It's the same problem that you get into when you try to read, read Ayn Rand, which is that in the text of the book, it's true that um, the only good form of government is anti-communist. <laughs> like, because that's the way the world has been set up. And then, as soon as you contextualize the book in the real world, it becomes clear that this isn't a question about whether the characters should or should not have done this. It's a question of why did the author make the world work that way? Yeah. Yeah. A hundred percent. That, yeah, it's... I don't know what the, I don't know what the right word for that is. There's yeah, I don't think we'll that there's a word one. for it, but I think we need to like figure out a way to encapsulate that concept because it's so important to deconstructing media. Mm-hmm. So anyway, so then there's the centaurs, <laughs> which okay. like the centaurs like live in the for the forbidden forest, and they're like upset at humans for having like encroached on their land or whatever. And at no point is it addressed that, like, oh, maybe we shouldn't have taken over their forest and put a castle here and, like, made it a school for little wizard children. The the only thing that does get addressed at all is itself very regressive, where then, like, a centaur gets kicked out of his, effectively, his tribe. Like, these are, like, come on, these are coded as, like, native people indigenous people he gets kicked mm-hmm. out of his tribe for helping the wizards and he gets given a job at hogwarts and this is like in the text this is like upheld as like he's being like a good centaur like this is like the like the good centaurs like serve us and come to work with us and for us and oh. like the the good ones come and teach our children oh, their special magic 
Oh yikes! You know, I'll be. I had never. I had never like dug into the the centaurs of it all. <laughs> to be honest, and yeah. like just that is. I know, and then that is bad. Okay, and then they carry off Dolores Umbridge at the end of book five, and it's like deeply implied that they're gonna like gang rape her. And that this is, like, the sufficient punishment for her having been a total bitch throughout all of book five. Which she is. She's terrible. But, like, okay, her punishment is that the inherently savage native people are gonna rape her. Okay. Mm, Yikes. (laughs) Yeah, okay. So, um, so I'm sure that I've, like in fact left out many ways that the um, Harry Potter books are inherently colonial. But those are my takes. I don't think either of us are arguing, like, throw your books out, burn them, never engage with this media again. No, definitely not. I'm not making that argument. Yeah. Um, But I think that the the one thing that we, we could probably both agree on is, you know, it is when you really start digging into the text and kind of the underlying beliefs that come from the writer and i mean this is true of all media that you know as much as we strive you know that some people would argue for the death of the author for you know complete um separation from authorial intent i think that it is important to still recognize these books didn't just pop out of nowhere and a lot of people have been been wanting to say like oh isn't it great that the this book series just appeared out of nowhere yeah and i think that that is kind of a a dangerous take as well yeah to because it's who jk rowling is and the beliefs that she has are intrinsically tied to the book and the deeper you dig into the some of the themes and the ways that she presents the different races and species and the magical system and the political system and everything in this book these books rather uh it's you really you know she's all over it and you can't you can't disentangle her as a person and as the creator of this from the actual story so that being said i think we just uh in general just need to be be able to consume media critically and and be able to look at it and see like, okay, I know what's problematic about this. And you can still read the books and watch the movies, but just, you know, like be aware of what, what the implicit messages are. Yeah. I don't think I'm ever going to tell someone not to read something. And okay, wait, I have, I have two things to say about this. The first thing that I want to say is that people can hold multiple viewpoints that contradict each other. We contain multitudes. An author like J.K. Rowling can espouse the idea that we, you know, are the, that, that our destinies are determined by ourselves and our choices and still have been brought up in a culture that tells her the opposite and believe it on some underlying level. Um, like, believe believe that you know that if you're white you're better that if you're british you're better that if you're cis and straight you're better um these messages 
they sink into us. And so one can decide to believe the opposite of what one's been told and still have to contend with the fact that they have been taught something that they don't agree with. And it is my opinion that um, only by wrestling with it internally are you going to get to that better place where you really can believe um, that the world is the way you want to believe that it is. Uh, let Let me let me try that again. Only by wrestling with the messages that society teaches us can we actually like become the people that we want to become. And so this is going to be true even inside of a book like Harry of like Harry Potter, um, where you know the, the 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 surface level message is like you know if you're strong and brave you can defeat evil, and be built on top of a foundation of you know the way that you're born and the way that what you're born into basically defines who you are, um, which to me is an implicitly or an explicitly transphobic message like yeah i don't i don't like it let me choose my destiny um okay so so that's the first thing is that people can hold people and therefore the media that they uh, create can actually hold contradictory viewpoints and um understanding that can actually lead to a, a better understanding of what you yourself believe the second thing is that i think that only by reading this type of media actually and looking for these messages that are hidden is are you going to become like a a reader that can truly enjoy things even when they aren't (laughs) problematic like to be honest my enjoyment of avatar for example avatar the last airbender not the blue people one we are not stands <laughs> here of the blue people avatar no. nope. <laughs> but we are stands of avatar the last airbender um like my appreciation for avatar the last airbender has only ever increased as i become a person who is like aware of the ways that authorial intent can injure a story or rather lack of authorial intent like as i become more critical of a story like harry potter like my enjoyment of then of other media has actually then increased. Um, and so a lot of people will um, bring up H.P. Lovecraft as a good example of this. And in my opinion... Totally. So, okay, so let me just briefly... H.P. Lovecraft is a notorious racist. Um, like, even for his time, people were like, wow, you sure are racist. And he yes. lived in a really racist time. Um, and his stories are, like, deeply, deeply racist. Like... They are just riddled with the, like, fear that basically black people are going to have sex with white women and create abominations. Yeah. That's, like, basically H.P. Lovecraft's, like, deepest fear. Yeah. And his, I, stories, uh, his stories are all about it. Yeah. I wrote I wrote a, a thesis about him in college, so... Oh, my God. Wait. I need to read yeah. it. Please let me read yeah. your thesis. Yes, or just I tell me your thesis. It. Yeah, I'll, I'll go. I'll go back and revisit it, and yeah, it's. I mean, it's basically that like racist fear of the other. Yeah. Also, he had he was really hung up on the fact that he couldn't fight in World War One. Oh, I didn't know that. That's interesting. Yeah, he really wanted. He really wanted to fight in World War One, and was pretty bummed out that he didn't get to go uh, kill people in Europe. 
Anyway, well, that's, that's a conversation for another day. <laughs> that's fascinating. Okay, but okay. Yeah. So my but my point about H.P. Lovecraft is that reading something as explicitly racist as H.P. Lovecraft and going into it knowing that that's what it is, in a certain way, it actually inoculates you against these messages seeping into you unconsciously. So my biggest issue with a book like Harry Potter or a book series like Harry Potter is that because it's targeted as children and because children maybe are not thinking critically about these things, they might, you know, basically, just like you were saying, like, oh, I've never thought about that, about the centaurs. Like, you just basically absorb these narratives and then you unthinkingly just sort of make them part of your worldview. And so I don't want to tell you not to read them. What I want to tell you is please read them and be critical and read a book like read books by authors like H.P. Lovecraft and notice the way that someone being racist or like having a viewpoint that they aren't even really aware of can change the way that they tell a story. Do it, read it and notice because by noticing it in books, you're going to get better at noticing it in real life. Very well said. Thank you. I have a lot of opinions. <laughs> oh, again. Maggie and I have opinions. <laughs> I did, I'll, I stole, I, that, I feel like I stole the, the melody of that from Community. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, try an op was... in the morning. <laughs> yeah. I like it, I like it. Dave, the other night, um, brought up, brought this, this topic up. And this is something that, you know, he and I, uh, he has had to listen to me talk <laughs> about this a lot. Yeah. Um, and, and it's, and it's, he just, and he makes fun of me for it mostly because he just like doesn't care because he never finished reading the series. And <laughs> oh, no. He just like, he's just like, I don't give a shit about JK Rowling and I don't care about Harry Potter. And like, can we all just pretend that this doesn't exist can we just move on no we can't move on i know and and it's it's hard for me to wrap my mind around exactly what it is about about this series that gives it the staying power that like makes makes it yeah makes it such a big thing that like every corner of the internet is talking about J.K. Rowling right now. And perhaps maybe it will have died down by the time we actually release this episode, but... Yeah, we can pull Lindsay Ellis on Game of Thrones. <laughs> yeah. And it's, yeah, I, I think that it will take... I'm sure that we're going to talk about about this again. Like, we'll, we're de- this definitely isn't the, the end of our conversations about Harry Potter. But I, I, I do wonder if we'll be able to articulate exactly what it is about this series that gives it the staying power that it has had Mm -hmm. and what, I don't know what it would take or if it's even possible for us to dismantle some of its cultural power because, and, and, and if it is the right decision to do that. And I am, I don't know right now. Um, I don't know what what the right thing to do is, but I do, I do think ultimately, (laughs) J.K. Rowling should have taken the money she got from the books and the movies and retired and she to her fucking castle and yeah. just stop, stop talking. I can Don't guarantee write you. write anything else. Yeah. Oh my God. Okay. I can guarantee you that I never would have thought about these books nearly as critically if I hadn't learned that she's a terrible person. Like, 
I yeah. can say for like for a fa- like like I think that I have a lot of good points to make, but I can tell you for a fact that I did not start seeing these until I was like, wait, like can I divorce this author from her books? I kind of feel like I can't. Why can't yeah, I? I don't. Th- I don't. F- yeah, I don't feel like I can. Um, no, I don't think that I can either. And I don't want. I, but I don't I want also, to anymore. Yeah, I don't either. And but I think that there are plenty of fans, and this is like not a diss, but I know plenty of. Uh, I mean, mostly white people in their like late twenties to early thirties who's still. To this day, their entire personality revolves around loving Harry Potter. And that's, that's a lot. It, it is. It is a lot. And and like if the series gave you so much joy and and that safe space that that feels right to you. Like, I'm not going to say, like, don't build your personality around this, like you do you and i think people should be comfortable doing you know doing the things they like to do etc but i do i do implore those people to read a different book yeah but also consider looking at that thing that you love so much critically yeah you know or look critically at that thing that you love Mm -hmm. because i i think that it, I, I, where I think that some of her power, J.K. Rowling's power, comes from is that legion of fans yeah. that don't that don't want to let go of the magic, and they or they don't want it to be tainted by thinking that she might be a bad person, or that by looking a little bit deeper at the story and seeing the things that are problematic. We didn't even get into the werewolf ism being a metaphor for AIDS, which is, I think when you dig into that is hugely problematic and really, really harmful to say like, Oh, all of this is a metaphor for AIDS and all of the people with the exception of one character that are infected with this disease in this story are Are evil, evil predators that specifically prey on children. (laughs) It's, um, it's, you know, and, and things like that where, you know, just take in that information when the author shares it and like really consider and think about it. And like, be willing to see the multitudes that exist because this author is a very complex person and and you need to allow for that allow for the complexity of some of this is good and some of it's really bad in right. consuming the media. Yep. So, I okay, like as a writer, the idea of someone like making their personality around the world that I'm creating, like, there's, like, something very thrilling about that idea, like, some, oh, like, what if someone loved my book so much that they wanted to do that, but then I, it's also, like, terrifying, like, I yeah. know there's problematic stuff in my book, I'm not gonna not write it because of that, like, I think that that, like, something being problematic doesn't mean that it's a bad story, I'm gonna try to address it in the text, like, I think my character, Nell, like, calls out the stuff that happens to her 
I think that she, like, you know, is self-determined and, like, knows about this stuff. But, like, there is no doubt in my mind that I'm going to miss something. And, you know, 20 years after I've written it, someone is going to notice something about it. Like, if I'm lucky enough to be published and have a fan base, someone's going to notice some thing that I did wrong. Like, yeah. That's going to happen. I don't know. Yeah, absolutely. I, and, yeah, I I feel the same way about my books and... You know, and, and I think, and especially, I, I, my story that I, I've been writing it since I came up with this idea in high school. So there are still some vestiges of ideas that I held yeah. 10 years ago, 12 years ago that, um, yep. oh, that same. I, yeah, that, that I still like, as I edit this book, I'm like unpacking all of that. Um, so this definitely is in the end of this conver- of this conversation, this specific conversation about J.K. Rowling and kind of her problematic existence. And it's certainly not the last time we're going to talk about Harry Potter, but I do think we've we've delved fairly deep today. So um, yeah, this <laughs> mini episode that is currently two almost two it's hours not, long. It's not going to be mini. Excuse <laughs> uh, Mega. It's a mega episode. <laughs> mega episode. I really enjoyed talking about the books we read when we were young, but what are we reading right now? So I just started at your recommendation, The Singer of All Songs. Um, uh, so far, it's nice. It really reminds me of Garth Nix's Sabriel series or Aberson. I don't remember what the name of the series, mm-hmm. but Sabriel, Lyriel, Ab- Aberson. Loved those books. So I'm excited for the idea of something that feels kind of similar. I am also reading... The Gnostic Gospels, which Ooh. is not a book of fiction. Um, I know. I know. Um, so this is like a total departure from our usual podcast topic, but I am reading the Gnostic Gospels because um, I would like to understand Christianity and how it got this way. <laughs> nice. Um, and at some point we can unpack that, but I'm not far enough into it to yeah. have an opinion, so... Um, so far, okay. it's very interesting, but I don't... Nice. Um, yeah, but that that's all I can say. Yeah, that's awesome. Uh, well, I am... Uh, just the other night, I finished reading Sing, Unburied Sing by Jasmine Ward, mm. which... Um, and that is, if anyone's unfamiliar with it, um, it is a book... I, I actually feel like I have, I have kind of a hard time explaining the plot of it, but um, it's about a family um, and them kind of contending with addiction, um, with dealing uh, issues of race. Um, it's very, very good. It's there there are ghosts in it, uh, which is which is cool. It's like on the back of it it says it's part road novel, part ghost story, which uh, oh. actually I sh- yeah, it's um, that and it won really the National good. Book Award. Yeah, it it was so incredible. It's a book that I've been meaning to read for... I've had it in my TBR stack by my bed for the last probably six months. And it was, you know, like in my immediate, like, I want to read this in the next month. Um, but I definitely, when I got to the point of... Uh, picking the next book I wanted to read I did move that one up the list a bit because it does tackle it it's it tackles issues of of race and the prison industrial complex without being um it's not didactic it is just a really beautiful book um and 
uh, I highly, highly recommend it to anyone who oh, is awesome. interested um, in reading it. It's definitely like strains of Toni Morrison, um, and it's just really lush and beautiful. I really recommend it. Um, and then yesterday I started reading There, There by Tommy Orange. So that's the next book for my book club. And uh, I'm really excited to read this book, too. I'm, I'm not very – I've only read a chapter of it. Um, but it's uh, – has a lot of different perspectives um and it's about the i believe the uh it's called the big oakland powwow um and so it doesn't on the back of the book it doesn't specify exactly what native community uh Mm. is coming together for the powwow i think it seems like there's a few um based on the cast of characters in the front but um another really highly acclaimed book and i'm really really excited to read this one as well um yeah i can't wait to hear more about it yeah it's it's very good so far and i'm uh definitely trying to i've been for the last few years trying to really diversify the types of writers that i am consuming from um so just kind of definitely carrying right. that through and trying to make a, a very a pointed effort of reading writers of color um yeah because i i feel like you can never get enough of that in your reading because there there's always i feel like there's always room for for more writers of color yeah no absolutely world, so oh and on that note uh, maggie and i are book clubbing me and white supremacy by Layla f Saad. um she is a black writer and activist and um, she has a podcast and um, social media presence and she is um she's she talks a lot about being a good ancestor that's like her sort of theme so if you ever kind of wondered like as a white person like how could i be a good ancestor maybe not to my like literal children but like how could i make the world a better place if you've ever asked that question um, I recommend you pick up this book. It has daily exercises and journaling prompts um, for about 28 days. It's not long, um, and it's good, and you should do it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's, um, yeah, it's been really, I feel like even, I, even just uh, as far as I am in the book, I definitely have started unpacking a lot of, um, a lot of my, my own internalized white supremacy internalized racism that just uh comes from the privilege of being a white person in america um and i yeah and and obviously not this is not to like brag about us like being good allies but just you know (laughs) holding ourselves publicly accountable for um for the work the, the work of of really helping yeah. to dismantle our own white supremacy so then we can be better uh, allies to the black community, the indigenous community, people of color, uh, as we try to make our country uh, better. Because it, it needs to be. It really needs to be. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I finished A Discovery of Witches. Um, left me pretty lukewarm. Okay. Yeah. I don't nice. know. Yeah. I like started to point out what was like annoying to me about it. And my mom was just like, I think that you think more about books than I do and care more. And I just liked it. And I was like, okay, 
that, that's fine. We can just leave it there. And I think that that's totally, that's totally fine. It's totally fine. It's right. Like none of my problems with it were like the kind that we're talking about now. I'm sure that I could find those if I looked for them, but I wasn't looking for those. I just like found things about it annoying from like a narrative perspective. And if that's not your jam, if you just like don't want to find things annoying and you just want to enjoy the books that you're reading, like I don't understand why you're like that, but that's fine. It's like, yeah, good for you. Like what you you don't want to dissect every decision that the author made. Why don't you want to? (laughs) Yes. Do you think that because we are also writers that that contributes to us reading books that way? I I yes yes okay yes well because I know I know other people who are not who are not writers or don't they don't consider themselves writers like they don't um, write fiction. Okay. Uh, but okay. but are very critical readers, you know, like uh, like okay. Dave is a very critical reader. He's a very thoughtful reader. Yeah, and but he, he is actually, a writer. He right? He he's is a writer. writer. He was telling me about that. his book. <laughs> yeah, he is. He is. He's is a writer. Um, I have I have other friends that like friends in my book club that aren't that would never consider themselves writers. Um, that are very thoughtful readers and bring really incisive questions to our discussions and stuff. So, um, yeah, but I do, I think there's a special, there's, there's a special angle that we take as writers too. So I do think that for me as a writer, understanding why something didn't work for me and then looking back on my own work and trying to understand if I am doing that or what the ways in which my book might follow the same patterns, I do think that that's a big deal for me. Totally. Yeah. And like using the work that I read as like a mirror into my own work. Um, But, and also vice versa. So then, you know, like when I write something and I'm like really proud of it and then like, you know, seeing it in a book, seeing that same kind of thing in a book where I'm like, Oh, like, you know, this character's also doing this thing. I think, yeah, I think it goes both ways. But I, I do think that my curiosity about how to tell a good story, because I want to, t- want to tell a good story, I do think that that ties into the way I read. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Me too. Yeah. Awesome. Should we sign off? Yes. So uh, for if y'all want to follow us on social media, get in touch with us. We are on twitter at trope con pod and we are on instagram at trope confessions pod on tumblr trope confessions pod as well um or you can send us an email if you have thoughts about the episode if you want to fight us about our opinions on jk rowling please uh, fight you us can, yeah please do um <laughs> <laughs> you can email us at uh, tropeconfessions at gmail.com. Um, and you can follow me personally at the Magpie Reads on Instagram and Twitter. You can follow me at I am Aguire on Twitter, Instagram, and you're even welcome to follow me on Tumblr if you so choose. Uh, A-Y-A-M-A-G-U-I-R-E. I am Aguire. All right. Signing off, this is your OTP, Maggie and Aya. Bye.
I love that part. Trope Confessions is made by me, Aya McGuire, and my co-host, Maggie Reed. The music on this episode and future episodes was made by Matt Lindauer. You can find his music online, linked in our Instagram page and on our Twitter profile. We are produced by Sam Shar. I'm really sad to say that she recently retired to her fucking castle. Just kidding, Sam. I love you.